This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, progressive news without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, our question is this, Donald Trump, fascist or clown? We'll ask John Powers, he's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Plus, another kind of politics, the gay revolution. We'll speak with Lillian Faderman about the 50-year fight, the years of outrageous injustice, the early battles, the heartbreaking defeats, and the victories beyond the dreams of gay rights pioneers. Her new book is The Gay Revolution. First up... Today, comment and analysis on Tuesday's primaries in Michigan and elsewhere. And for that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect. He writes for the L.A. Times, The Guardian, and many other publications. Harold, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, John. Well, Michigan was the first real test of Bernie versus Hillary in a big industrial state. Michigan's problems of course, are a microcosm of the problems of America, deindustrialization, crumbling infrastructure, urban decay. And every poll had Hillary leading by at least five points. Many had her lead at 20 points or, or even more. Bernie insiders were saying that his goal was to keep her victory margin under 10 percent, that if she won by more than that, they would face calls for him to drop out of the race. But, but Bernie won. Uh, 50 to 48, one of the one of the great upsets in modern political history. So our question for you, what happened in Michigan? Well, I mean, that, that you break that down into two parts. Why did Bernie win, uh, which I can begin to answer, and why were all the polls woefully off, which I do not have an answer to. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure uh, both the campaigns and uh, all the pollsters are trying to ponder that second question today. So let's ponder the first. Okay. Uh, I think it's it's clear two things emerged uh, in the state that were really uh, exceptional. The first is Bernie's greater support uh, in the white working class, which is a particularly important constituency in the industrial or, more accurately, the post-industrial Midwest, uh, a group that rightly feels abandoned, uh, many of whose members, particularly men, uh, have uh, drifted off to Donald Trump and have been in the Republican orbit for some time. Uh, others clearly responding to Bernie's lifelong commitment, opposing anything uh, that benefited capital at labor's expense, including trade deals, thought Bernie was a much more reliable uh, defender of uh, of their interests than uh, than Hillary Clinton was. And although Hillary Clinton has shifted her position on things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, I don't think she engenders a great deal of trust in that constituency that that's the kind of commitment 
she can uh, go forward on unconflicted were she were she president. The other really interesting uh, uh, exception to the rule so far in Michigan is that Bernie significantly boosted his level of African American support to uh, just over a third instead of you know more or less. 10 to 20 percent, which it's been running in um, in southern states. Northern states, uh, 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 clearly I think the African-American communities in big cities in northern states are more open to Bernie's appeal uh, than uh, more rural southern African-Americans. He did particularly well among uh, young African-Americans, running even almost in the uh, vote of those under 45. I haven't seen the numbers break, broken out yet. The polling sample, the exit polling sample may be too small for those under 30, but if he ran even or almost even among African-American voters under 45, he had to win, actually, the cohort that he's run strongest with um, in the non-African-American community thus far, which is voters under 30. And as the uh, election schedule now moves to Ohio and Cleveland and uh, Illinois and Chicago and uh, New York and New York. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, I think he stands uh, to do fairly well in the African-American communities there as well, particularly with young African-American voters. So uh, while I still think if you had to bet uh, all your life savings on who would win the Democratic uh, nomination, you would still bet on Hillary Clinton. Bernie Sanders is showing strength, and as his campaign has accurately noted, the states uh, that have yet to be heard from are states where he can be expected uh, to do fairly well. And if we compare Bernie's and Hillary's uh, jobs plans, the things that we need most in America, Bernie's uh, big proposal is big on infrastructure, the Rebuild America Act. Bernie wants to invest $1 trillion over five years on fixing roads and bridges and schools and water systems. Hillary also is for infrastructure, $275 billion, like almost a quarter of what Bernie proposes. And of course, Bernie favors a $15 minimum wage. Hillary is for $12. So it seems like Hillary wants what Bernie wants for working people, just less. Is that fair? It is fair, and I think she's sort of calibrated in, in, in her calculation what's politically possible and more politically saleable in this year's electorate. In terms of the wage, she actually may be right. In terms of the commitment to infrastructure, I don't think so. I think the public would think bigger is better on this. A cautionary note, both of them, you know, predict X millions of jobs. Yeah. In Bernie's case, it's 13 million that would be created uh, from this. Um, we, we, we do need to keep in mind that given just the technological advances in construction, that infrastructure, building, building things doesn't employ as many people on the same task that it would have uh, 15 or 30 or 45 years ago, much less in the 1930s when the great uh, public works programs of the New Deal, of the Roosevelt administration, employed millions of people and were essentially pick-and-shovel jobs. We don't have pick-and-shovel jobs anymore. Uh, but that said, uh, two things. First of all, it, it still could employ a lot of people. And secondly, 
there, there are a lot of uh, other tasks that I think government can invest and create jobs in uh, in uh, in public health and uh, uh, more teachers and and things like that. So. Uh, uh, while I'm 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 dubious that uh, even the trillion dollar commitment over five years of, of of Bernie Sanders could create 13 million infrastructure jobs, I think it could create you know certainly more than half of that. And uh, if uh, his tax policies or if some of his tax policies were uh, adopted, uh, then you could uh, create more jobs in in other sectors. Hillary says working class people should vote for her because when Bill was president, the economy, she says, created 23 million new jobs. Quote, incomes went up for everybody. We lifted more people out of poverty than at any other time in recent history, close quote. Is that a good reason to vote for Hillary today? Well, I mean, she's factually correct. There's no disputing that. Uh, uh, there, there's a downside, though, to the uh, economic policies of the Bill Clinton uh, presidency, uh, chiefly the deregulation of, of finance yeah. and, uh, and the trade deals. Uh, and it, it's, also, it, it's not clear that by waving uh, what might be a magic Clinton wand, let us say, uh, Hillary could recreate uh, what happened to the economy uh, during Bill Clinton's presidency. Uh, there were, you know, particular gains in productivity uh, in, in tech and in other sectors, uh, which did boost the economy, which, which we're not seeing now. I'm, I'm, I mean, there's, there's no question that every bit of historical economic data that we have uh, say, says that uh, economies grow more under the economic policies of Democratic presidents than those of Republican presidents. So I, I, I don't doubt the economy would do uh, considerably better under a Clinton or a Sanders than it would under uh, any of the Republican uh, prospective nominees. But uh, I, I don't think we can uh, just magically assume that what worked in the 90s would uh, work today. There's been a lot of economic changes. Uh, we've offshored a hell of a lot of, of, of decent-paying jobs. And so while the economy has created quite a number of jobs during Barack Obama's presidency, they're disproportionately low-end jobs because the middle of the economy has largely been offshored. Uh, one footnote to the vote in Michigan, Dearborn, 70 percent uh, Muslim, biggest Muslim population in the country, voted for Bernie, the first Jewish candidate for president. Is America a great country or what? It sure the hell is. That's a marvelous uh, factoid, which we uh, we should all remember. Well, let's look at the Republicans in Michigan. Uh, the white working class has been Trump's base of support, especially white working class men, not just in the South. He says he will carry Michigan in the fall because he can win white working class men. Of course, Obama carried Michigan in 2008, 57 to 41 Trump's p proposal on exporting jobs, I just have to quote this one, he too has been complaining about the, the departure of manufacturing plants for Mexico and China. He says uh, he will bring back 
uh, manufacturing jobs, especially automotive jobs, by the following method. He would pick up the phone and call the chief of any American company that moved factories to Mexico and threaten a 35% tariff. Quote, within 24 to 48 hours, he says, of such an ultimatum, the chief uh, of the company would be on the phone and say, Mr. President, we're moving back. Of course, the president doesn't really have the authority to do that, but he says the power of his personality and his ability to negotiate deals would do that. Uh, You think white workers in Michigan and Ohio and Illinois are are stupid enough to believe that would work? Well, uh, I think what they did yesterday suggests that if they're not quite stupid enough to think that would work, they like that someone is what they see as championing their interests, which is, on the economic front, completely a novel development within the Republican Party. Yeah. Uh, where, where Trump has broken from Republican orthodoxy, is is saying that you know trade deals grew the working class uh and uh, that that runs counter to republican economic holy writ all the way back through eisenhower so um uh, i i think they respond to that i think i think i mean i think a lot of the response to trump uh is based on viewing what he says at some level as uh, as metaphoric but i will say this and i think this is important even though i have I favor Bernie Sanders. I have always thought that Hillary would be the stronger candidate come November. And why is that? But I'm going to say why I don't believe that anymore. But uh. I have felt that Bernie would be vulnerable to the same kind of attacks that uh, Upton Sinclair uh, faced uh, in what is really, I think, the only analogous campaign in American political history to what Bernie is doing now. Sinclair was a lifelong socialist who in 1933 said, hey, I'm a Democrat, ran uh, for governor of California in 1934, won the Democratic primary, and then was red-baited and everything else uh, to an exceptional degree, and, and lost, even though he had been leading. Uh, Bernie would be subject to that kind of stuff, too. He hasn't been yet, because Hillary uh, can't really afford to estrange his, uh, his base of support. But looking at what happened in Michigan, uh, on both sides of the uh, 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 party divide last night. Uh, I think it's now quite likely that Bernie would be the stronger candidate uh, than Hillary in states like Michigan, which is to say Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, and Wisconsin in, in particular. And um, those states that Democrats have won all the way back through 1988, they can't afford to lose them. Now, Hillary might be somewhat stronger in other uh, uh, you know, potential demographic groups uh, where Democrats uh, draw votes. But I don't think she would be, uh, I think her margin of over Bernie in, in, in those groups is going to be smaller than Bernie's margin over her among uh, the white working class. Now, the white working class is a shrinking part of the electorate, and the Democrats haven't won it uh, since, almost since Lyndon Johnson's day. But uh, they need to do just enough. They need to run just well enough in that group, uh, so so that uh, they fend off Republican uh, victories. And I think he can do that better than she. And so, for the first time, because I've, I've really discounted the polls that show Bernie running stronger than Hillary, because they they don't factor in the attacks that have yet to come on him. 
But given what happened in Michigan, for the first time, I really think that Bernie would be the stronger candidate come November. Wow. Uh, Last question. What did you think of Trump's speech uh, after winning Michigan? Trump water, (laughs) Trump vodka, Trump steaks. We're we're on only untrod terrain. Can you imagine uh, Thomas Jefferson or James Madison in, a, in, in the middle of a speech stopping and say, I've got some great slaves I'd like to sell to you? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's sort of analogous to that. Uh, you know, boy, what a, what a, what a guy. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, and, and that part of, of, of Trump is, is, I suppose, somewhat analogous to uh, Berlusconi in Italy, the totally personalized leadership. The other parts of Trump are scarier than that. Harold Meyerson, read him at The American Prospect. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. Pleasure, John. Today's big question, Donald Trump, fascist or clown? For that, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he has an audience of something like four million listeners. He also writes about politics and movies for Vogue and Vogue.com. He's a former professor at Georgetown University, and he's author of the book Sore Winners, A Study of American Culture During the Presidency of George W. Bush. John Powers, welcome back. I'm glad to be here. Well, a lot of our friends have been calling Donald Trump a fascist, but the Daily News, that New York newspaper that has the greatest front pages of any paper in America, has been calling him a clown and running pretty hilarious Photoshop images of Trump in clown makeup with headlines like Clown Runs for President and Sideshow Don. Uh, in the Washington Post, there's a writer who's called him the class clown. And, and if you Google Trump and clown, you get more than 8 million hits. Wow. So, <laughs> so what is a clown? A clown is a character in a circus who makes people laugh. For many people, the clown is their favorite character in the circus. So, so what do you think of the idea of Trump as a clown? Well, there's a way in which he's clownish, and almost deliberately so. I mean, when, when you watch him spraying water on the stage, making fun of Marco Rubio, or, or doing some of his shtick, you realize that he is a professional entertainer. Yes. You know, that he, he has built it up over years, and he knows how to make people laugh. His rallies, it, when they're not beating people up at his rallies, the people there are very happy. They're having a good time. One of my favorite moments of this, of, of this election was watching him stand uh, you know, up on a platform for thousands of people and say, Nobody loves the Bible more than I do. (laughs) And the audience laughed delightedly because they knew that part of the show of being a politician is that you have to claim to love the Bible, and therefore, and they're pleased that he would more or less genuflect before the Bible, but at the same time, they knew that he didn't love the Bible more than anybody else, so this was part of his deal. Is he's gonna? Is that there's part of a game or a comedy aspect to what he's doing? So at that level, he is a clown. On the other side, what what exactly is it that makes Trump a fascist? The main thing people point to, Rachel Maddow, for instance, is the the aura of violence at his rallies, and and of course the actual violence of his followers at rallies, attacking and beating up protesters. While Trump himself shouts, "Get him out! Uh, get him out!" I I think you've you've seen these clips. Oh yes, no, 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 no. There is there is something deeply nasty about it that that does recall all sorts of things. I mean, I think you know that if you th- if you think in fascist terms, 
it is pinning everything on one leader who will know the answer, and it's a vindictive leader who more or less doesn't brook any opposition to his opinions. He's not a, I don't think he's a Hitler kind of fascist. Part of it is he doesn't really have many principles. So, you know, whereas Hitler actually did believe all sorts of loathsome, loathsome things passionately for years, we never really know what Trump thinks. And I think a proper fascist actually has to believe a few things. You know, they, historically they've been anti-communist. Historically they've, they've been some ethnic group that they often hate. Uh, but in fact, I'm not sure Trump has a particularly deep feeling about any particular ethnic group at all. I don't think he has any deep feelings really about Mexicans. I think that's more or less a tactical thing that he says. He's a nationalist. It plays. It's worked for him. But I, I don't think that he's driven by a hatred of Mexicans in the way that, say, Hitler was driven by a hatred of Jews. Yeah, I think you're definitely onto something here. There is a, we could call it a fascist feel that the idea that what we need to solve our problems is a, a strong leader who will, yes. who will take care of everything through the force of his personality. That's yes. certainly Trump. And while he may not be, quote, sincere in his hatred of Mexican immigrants and Muslims, uh, you know, people said things like that about Hitler in the, in the 20s. The, the main structural thing here is blaming the despised outsiders for our problems and seeking to purify the nation by, by expelling them, by deporting them, by building walls. There's a sort of a fascist feel to that, don't you think? Oh, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, as I say, I'm just saying it's not a traditional kind of of fascist thing. And at some level, it doesn't really matter whether Trump himself believes it. What matters is that he's prepared to say it and get, let's say, somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the Republican electorate to go wild for him by blaming people who are basically powerless for all the problems of the country. I mean, obviously, nothing is nastier than 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 Hitler, but Trump does this at some of maybe without even meaning it, which makes it what he's doing deeply, deeply cynical and and self promoting in a, in a truly awful way. Uh, recently, I heard a report on something new that Trump is doing at his uh, rallies. He's asking his supporters to raise their hands and swear that they will vote for him, like take a oath of loyalty as a group with their hands raised. Some critics have pointed out there's a certain similarity here to uh, the crowd at uh, Nuremberg rallies giving the Nazi salute, swearing loyalty to the leader, sort of fascist. Uh, Ted Cruz even brought this up, criticized uh, Trump for asking his followers to swear loyalty to him. But uh, Ted Cruz didn't compare it to Hitler. He compared it to Obama, who acts like an emperor, he said. What's so strange is you know, when you're listening to the Ted Cruz's and Marco Rubio's, you, you conjure up an Obama so much more powerful and awesome and yes. terrible yes. and progressive than the one that actually existed. It, 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 you know, they live in the realm of a fantasy Obama, where, as we, I think we've discussed in the past, is at once Hitler and Stalin. This is the Obama who has pushed through everything enormously, even though we all know he's been thwarted at most turns by, yes. by Republicans voting against everything he did. Yet somehow in, in their heads, 
or at least the heads of the audiences, it works to say that he's this all-powerful, almost dictatorial figure. Um, if we can return for a moment to the oath thing, yes. I mean, if you watch the if you watch the films of it, it's it's sillier than than it sounds when you describe it. You know, I mean, I was watching a tape of him saying, making people do the, the oath, and once again, people were kind of laughing. And once they finished, he said, of course you don't actually have to do this if you don't want to, but I hope you really will. Our friends at The Intercept have been taking up the question of, is Donald Trump really a fascist? They run down his positions and point out some, make some interesting arguments. Okay, Donald Trump is for torture, but that was the American government policy for almost eight years under George W. Bush. Uh, Donald Trump wants to fight foreign wars against our enemies, something most other presidents have done, including LBJ in Vietnam, up to Obama in Afghanistan. Trump wants to keep Gitmo open. So does most of Congress. Trump wants to keep Muslims out of the United States. Do the other Republican candidates disagree with him on this or really any of his other positions. Trump wants to build this border wall, but Obama already has more border patrol agents than any other president, and Obama has deported more people than any other president. Uh, And last on the list at The Intercept, Trump was asked about ordering U.S. military to commit war crimes such as torture. Would they obey if he ordered them to do it? And uh, he replied, quote, they're not going to refuse. Believe me, if I say do it, they're going to do it. That's what leadership is about, close quote. Uh, Glenn Greenwald at The Intercept asked, is there any doubt that Trump is right? Look at what's happened over the last uh, 12 years in in America's prisons and, and dark sites abroad. So what do you think of The uh, Intercept's argument that uh, Trump's so-called fascist positions really are pretty widely held in the Republican Party and in some ways in the Democratic Party. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of them are. You know, I mean, I mean you know, there's, there's a reason why he's, he's winning the Republican nomination. Two-thirds of the people who vote for him think that Obama's not a U.S. citizen. They think he's a Muslim. I think more than, more than half people who vote for him think that the Muslim ban's a good idea. You know, to be fair to that nice man, Ted Cruz... Ted Cruz did, the day Trump said it, instantly say that's unconstitutional, you can't do it. Now, this may be just because Tr- Cruz is trying to prove that he loves the Constitution. N- nevertheless, he has, he has spoken against that particular idea, although he's, you know, he's, he's, Cruz has talked a little too happily about how easy it would be to like, go into people's homes and pull them out and ship them back to Mexico or Central America. So you know, he's no hero on that. On most of the things, people haven't stood up to him. Most of the Republican candidates have, have disagreed with him on torture. And in fact, you know, Trump has derided Ted Cruz for basically not being manly enough to, to, to or ask for torture. I'm not sure all of this is enough to, to, to make a person a fascist. For, as you say, a lot of the stuff that was done was done during the Bush years. And last, I I noticed that uh, Trump is moderating some of his more extreme positions recently on visas for foreign workers. At last week's Fox News debate, he told Megyn Kelly, I'm changing, I'm softening the position because we have to have talented people in this country. And the day after, uh, he told uh, the Fox News moderators that he would order the military to uh, engage in torture. Uh, he reversed his position and, and he said, quote, I will not order a military officer to disobey the law, close quote. Somebody obviously told him he, that the president has to obey the law. And he said, I'm becoming mainstream. 
uh, with a bit of chagrin. Uh, what do you make of the more moderate Trump? The more moderate Trump is of a piece with the unmoderate Trump, or the immoderate Trump, which is to say that he says whatever will work at the moment. Um, he's one of those strange men who seems to think that the world begins afresh every day. <laughs> more than any of the other candidates, when Fox played back his old you know, clips of the stuff he used to say, he was, he was shocked and taken aback that they would do such a thing to him. But of course, no one, I think no person who's ever been this far ahead for a nomination in any party has ever changed his mind more often on more things than Donald Trump. What's encouraging in that, in terms of like scare, the scariest parts of fascism, is that he means that he's not wedded to anything except winning and being loved. What's scary about that is you'd have a person who could become president who doesn't care about anything except winning and being loved. That's a scary place to be, but maybe it's a little less scary than thinking that he's deeply committed to violating the Constitution or making people do illegal things or really, really throwing all those, uh, throwing 11 million people out of the country. It's not clear to me he's deeply committed to that because his f fundamental identity is a deal maker. During one of the debates he was asked, I think, maybe it was the last one, is he just setting out extreme positions the way dealmakers do in order to negotiate toward the middle? He ducked the question, but in fact, that, that seems to me to be his way of working things. He's going to moderate himself even more if he runs against Hillary Clinton. The encouraging thing is he, somehow if you, if you tap him in a way he doesn't like or slap him in a way he doesn't like, he seems incapable of controlling himself. So I'm already looking forward to if he were, were to run against Hillary, her saying something that really got under his skin and him saying something so egregious about her body, say, that every woman in the country would instantly recoil and he would lose the election on the spot. John Powers, you can hear him on Fresh Air with Terry Gross. You can read him at Vogue.com. John, thanks for talking with us today. It's fun talking to you, John. Next up, another kind of politics, the gay revolution. For that, we turn to Lillian Faderman. She's a historian of feminism and the LGBT movement who's written many books and won many awards. The New York Times named three of her books on its notable books of the year list, including Surpassing the Love of Men and Odd Girls and Twilight Lovers. She's received six Lambda Literary Awards and two American Library Association Awards. Her newest book is The Gay Revolution. Lillian Faderman, welcome. We know a lot about the recent triumph of gay marriage in America, and we know something about the Stonewall Rebellion of 1969, but there's a lot more to learn, especially about the earliest years. To set the stage, you open your history of the gay revolution with the story of a professor of journalism in Columbia, Missouri, in 1948. His name was E.K. Johnston, and he'd been teaching there for 24 years. Professor Johnston was never caught uh, in a sexual act. He was never caught in any sort of compromising position. But the man he lived with had been named by someone who was arrested. And as usually happened in the mid-20th century, people were arrested and made to name names. And the man he lived with, under great pressure, named Professor Johnston, 
who was, before he was tried or found guilty of anything, he was simply accused of, of being a homosexual. He was accused of sodomy. He was fired from his position. He'd been at the university for well over 20 years. He'd been the acting dean of the School of Journalism that year. He was virtually hounded out of town. He was destroyed. And it was the beginning of a witch hunt for gay and lesbian faculty and even gay and lesbian students at the University of Missouri. But it didn't happen over the, only there. It was happening at colleges and universities all over the country in the mid-20th century. So this professor was put on trial. His lawyer advised him to plead guilty and throw himself on the mercy of the court he didn't have to go to prison. He didn't have to go to prison because the lawyer got a psychiatrist to say, well, yes, indeed, he is a homosexual, but I don't think he's a danger to society. And the lawyer also got many character witnesses to say this was a wonderful, upstanding man. So he didn't have to go to prison. He was put on probation for four years. He was pay, uh, made to pay a, a couple of thousand dollars in court costs, and then the judge concluded that uh, part of, of the deal with probation is that he had to steer clear of any homosexual activity from that point on. Middle America in 1948 and really all of America in 1948, but something else really interesting happened in 1948. Another story you tell in your book, The Gay Revolution, the organization in Los Angeles of a group called Bachelors for Wallace. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yes, that, that was started by a, a wonderful man named Harry Hay. And obviously, Bachelors for Wallace was made to attract liberal homosexuals. You couldn't very well call an organization a homosexual organization or gay people for Wallace. Maybe we should just remind our listeners, in case they don't remember who was this Wallace of 1948? This is not George Wallace, the <laughs> right, governor no. of Alabama. <laughs> no, he, he was a political candidate, very far left, uh, didn't stand a chance, unfortunately. Running but, as a uh, Democrat, he'd been the right. vice president for FDR, but now he was the left-wing <laughs> yes, candidate yes. in 1948. Yes. And so who was the person who organized Bachelors for Wallace? <laughs> Harry Hay didn't get very far in that particular organization. Uh, but a couple of years later, he was the one who started Mattachine Society. Mattachine Society was the first ongoing uh, homophile organization, as homosexual organizations were called in the mid-20th century. And that uh, actually lasted for uh, a couple of decades and did have chapters all around the United States. It, it wasn't uh, especially successful, although it did have some uh, really remarkable court trials in which homosexuals came out on top. And this guy, Harry Hay... Uh, they said he was a communist. Yes, he he uh, he had actually belonged to the Communist Party, and something very sad happened in in the organization that he started. Uh, it began to grow when uh, they decided to challenge uh, a case of one of their members, Dale Jennings, who had been entrapped by a vice squad officer. 
Dale Jennings said that he never came on to the vice squad officer. He was not guilty, and they took it to trial, and they won the case. The case was dismissed. That was in 1953, and the the organization grew uh, significantly right after that. And the bigger it got, the more people started to say, well, who who's heading this organization? And Harry Hay uh, really wanted uh, sort of the, the cell uh, method of organizing so you didn't really know who else was in the organization and who was on top of the organization. When it discovered that Harry Hay and the four other founding members, when it was discovered they had belonged to the Communist Party at one point, the uh, new middle-class homosexuals who had joined the organization recently said, this is too dangerous. We don't want communists heading this homosexual organization. Uh, The FBI will investigate the communists, and then they'll investigate us as homosexuals as well. And so Harry Hay and the other founding members were drummed out of the organization that they had founded. Manasheen Society, Bachelors for Wallace, these are groups of men There was also an organization in the 50s called the Daughters of Belitis. Was that like the Daughters of the American Revolution? (laughs) They actually chose that name uh, to hide who they were, and and they hoped that people on the outside who were hostile to lesbians would think that maybe this was an organization like (laughs) the Daughters of the American Revolution. It started in 1955. Uh, Two of the founding members were Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, who went on to be real icons of the LGBT movement. Um, It had started with uh, some hopes of being a political organization. It it became largely a social organization for lesbians. But even as a social organization, it was, of course, political because it it told women – not only in San Francisco where it started, but through its magazine, The Ladder, all over the United States, that there were others like them, that it was okay to be a lesbian, that that they didn't have to think of themselves as isolated. And so in that sense, it was indeed a political organization. Psychiatry in the 50s and 60s defined homosexuality as a mental illness caused by uh, mothers who were too close to their sons, blame the mothers. Uh, How did gays and and lesbians stop being diagnosed as as crazy? We were actually all cured overnight in (laughs) 1973. It was a miracle. (laughs) What happened in 1973 is that the American Psychiatric Association's Bible which was the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, that since 1952, since the first edition, it had included homosexuality among the mental disorders. But because of pressure and education by various gay groups, the American Psychiatric Association finally came to understand that homosexuals were no more and no less well-adjusted than than the general population. And so homosexuality per se was taken out of the DSM. The 80s, when we think of gay America in the 80s, of course, we think of the AIDS epidemic. The Christian right said it was God's retribution 
and that AIDS meant gay rights were dangerous to heterosexuals and suddenly the whole idea of, of gay pride was, it was in trouble. AIDS could have meant the end of the movement for gay civil rights. Why, why didn't it? Yes, I, I think AIDS was certainly the worst tragedy to ever hit the LGBT community. But in, in some surprising and paradoxical ways, it truly made us strong. One thing that happened is that more and more gay people came out. Some came out involuntarily, of course, through the disease, but many came out voluntarily. Many realized that in, in the face of a disaster like AIDS, this was no time to hang out in the closet. They had to come out and they had to work to help people with AIDS, not only in a practical day-to-day -day way, but they had to agitate to make the federal government put more funding into finding a cure, and they did indeed do that. And in surprising ways, too, it, it healed rifts in the uh, between the gays and the lesbians. In the 1970s, uh, many lesbians were lesbian feminists or lesbian separatists, and they distrusted gay men just as they distrusted the male population in general. But I, I think because of the epidemic, they realized that this was no time for animosity. And so it was often lesbians who started food banks. It was often lesbians who were familiar with the medical profession because they were nurses or whatever who uh, helped gay men uh, uh, find their way in the maze of the uh, medical system to, to get help. Uh, was lesbians who were very instrumental in fundraising to help establish organizations that aided men with AIDS. So, Lillian Faderman, over the decades from the 70s to the present, we've seen how, how much America has uh, changed. But the gay movement has also changed. In the, in the 70s, gays rejected marriage, rejected the traditional family in the name of sexual liberation. Yes. What happened? Yes, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. Uh, it goes back to even before that. In 1953, uh, the first national gay magazine uh, started to be published. It was called One. And one of the um, first uh, issues of One had um, on its cover – uh, the words homosexual marriage, question mark, which sounded so revolutionary that it cost, caused the Los Angeles postmaster to confiscate all copies. But if he had read the article, he wouldn't have been quite so upset. Uh, the article was called Marriage License or License. And the author said rebels such as we will never be interested in stuffy and staid institutions such as marriage. The, uh, the Gay Liberation Front, which uh, began right after the Stonewall Riots in 1969, also made it as one of their primary goals to, uh, to fight against the institution of marriage, which they said was the, uh, the home of capitalism, in effect, uh, uh, the, the greatest supporter of the system, they called it, the system that they wanted to tear down. Um, even the woman who was the head of Lambda Legal Defense and Education Fund, which is the primary uh, LGBT 
legal organization, wrote in um, 1989. Uh, this was Paula Edelbrick. She wrote an, an article saying, since when is marriage the path to liberation? Mm-hmm. So there was huge opposition to same-sex marriage within the gay and lesbian community. What was realized, I think, is that we would never become first-class American citizens until we were permitted into these uh, major institutions of our society. The military, of course, is one of them, and marriage is another. And it was also realized that by not being married, committed gay and lesbian couples lost over a thousand federal benefits. And so, of course, many of us decided that marriage was the way to go, which is not to say that that's true of the entire LGBT community. As I talked about before, there are certainly many factions within the community, and radicals in the community still disapprove of same-sex marriage or any kind of marriage and think it's a shame that so much effort has been spent on uh, getting the right to marry. One last question. The title of your book is The Gay Revolution. It's not the gay and lesbian revolution. It's not the G-L-B-T-Q-Q-I-A-A-P-P revolution. I was going to stop at Q, but okay. How did you? I I explain um, uh, in a note, I call it a brief history of changing terminology, that gay was the underground term for all of us when I came out as a lesbian in the mid-century in 1956. Uh, What uh, straight people knew was homosexual, and that was the term for all of us, whether we were L or G or B (laughs) or T or Q or or whatever. Uh, But among ourselves, we all called ourselves gay. Lillian Federman's new book is The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle. Lillian, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you so much, John. I enjoyed it. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded and edited by Jerry Gorin at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, give us a rating at iTunes. Five stars is good. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thank you.